everyone, welcome to episode 19 of DevOps Squared. Um, so this week we are going to be talking about DevOps and uh, microservices, so I'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the technology aspects involved and, and what that means for DevOps. Okay, so uh, with that I want to um, thank Tracy Brigan for joining us, who is the CEO of DeployHub. So first of all, Tracy, uh, Thank you very much, and, and welcome to the podcast. And uh, if you would just like to give us a quick intro to, uh, about yourself and, and tell everyone a little bit about what you do. Absolutely, and thank you, Martin, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I love talking about uh, microservices and modern architecture. It's, I find it to be really fascinating and an amazing time to be in software. Um, I'm the CEO of uh, DeployHub. We are a uh, microservice management platform. We provide a almost like an internal marketplace for developers to publish microservices. And when they publish them, they publish them with all of the details needed to deploy them across um, many clusters. So we kind of separate the data from definition. So other application teams can, uh, to, can use those microservices and consistently deploy them and track them, um, which is part of the kind of the challenge of microservices in the first place. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so that's, that's really interesting. So we'll, we'll dig into a, a few more details uh, around that as we um, get into the subject a, a little bit more. But to start off um, with first of all, um, I want to ask you the, the first question I ask everyone that comes onto the podcast, which is, what does DevOps mean to you? My career. <laughs> I've been doing. <laughs> I've been doing DevOps really all my life. You know, people. We think that DevOps is a new term. Um, I was. I started out of college as a mainframe programmer, and I remember the first day that I was told I had to use something called Endeavor. I probably had a little hissy fit. Um, and Endeavor is a mainframe product that is basically a a complete package CI/CD tool that does deployments and ships across LPARs. And you know what it stands for? It stands for Environment for Developers and Operations. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, the mainframers have been doing DevOps for a long time, and that's where I was taught. So I learned proper DevOps as a mainframe programmer. And when I went into the distributed side, I started uh, writing OS2 code. I was horrified when I realized I had to write my own, basically in my world, thinking I had to write my own compile JCL, and I couldn't. I didn't have any place to check my code in. I just copied it over to a directory, and somebody backed up the directory every night. It was like, what kind of world is have I gotten myself into? So DevOps has been my entire career because it. I've I learned at an early age in my career that it was critical to software development. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I've talked to a few people and a few guests as well. And um, I, I always say that when, when you look at the, the types of people that are involved in, in DevOps today, um, I, your developers and your more traditional um, infrastructure engineers and support engineers, um, I always think that, that people with a development background or who are in software engineering today, um always seem to pick up the concepts of DevOps a, a lot easier. And I think that, that directly comes to what you were just saying there. Um, wh why do you think it's easier for, for developers to pick up on the concepts? I don't know if it is. Um, 
it's it's easier to pick up on the concepts when you begin understanding the benefit you you get from it. Um, I I struggle with understanding why more people don't understand the importance, for example, of CI/CD, which is the core of DevOps. Which is you know if we go back to me as a early programmer learning to do Endeavor, you know. Mm-hmm. Initially, I did fight it because I didn't want to lose control. I was like, wait a second, I have my program, I have, you know, this compiled JCL, I can compile it into this, the dev uh, state, why do I have to check this stuff in? So maybe there, maybe, you know, when I look at my past me, I was afraid of losing some level of control. And if we, we look across the board and tools, oftentimes, I mean, I, even to this day, I hear people say that DevOps is practiced at dev and test, but operations, they want to do something completely different. So if you look at, you know, just our monolithic process of deploying software, we have developers write these scripts that support development. They might tweak it some for test, and then production does something completely different. I mean, come on, this is the 21st century, and we're still doing this? But I, I think sometimes it's not a matter of, not understanding the concepts, but there is cultural things and control issues that people um, mm-hmm. are afraid of letting go. They're afraid of letting go. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I always think that it's more uh, cultural than anything else, a bit like you were saying there. And, and one of the reasons that makes me say that, and I talk to a lot of clients about this as well, is um, if, if you think about the motor industry, you know, the motor industry went through um, the, the lean process <laughs> quite some time ago. And they have ultimately, you know, in our world today, they have done the ultimate shift left. And the majority of things are now done by robots um, rather than humans at all. And they're able to um, build many more cars a lot, a lot quicker than they used to before. So, so when I start to hear a, a level of resistance from people about the value of it, I, I always talk about the motor industry because it's very relatable to a lot of people. You don't, you know, you don't have to be a petrol head or you don't have to understand um, motoring in any way to understand just the very basics at that level of you, you provide a way to do things quicker and with higher repeatability and quality, you, you output more. Uh, and when you start to talk about that and, and make it not about technology and not about something which they're you know passionate about, which is is very ab- admirable as it is in in every industry, but something that they don't feel as though they're going to lose control over. That's why I always use that um, you know motor and industry metaphor because it's something completely detached from what they're used to. They they all of a sudden realise that oh, hang on, yeah, we, we could do the same thing, um, and then the challenge is make them. You know, feel more comfortable with what's going to happen. You know, just because you give up this piece of work or this process doesn't mean you're out the job effectively. And I think that's the biggest uh, challenge that a lot of people see. And you know, I've I've heard similar arguments. Um, what somebody told me, it, it, this was through a kind of an email stream. They said, "Why would we want to automate this when you know there is a craft in being able to write these scripts and doing things more manual there's a there's a craftsmanship to it and my response was yeah and if you are a shoe cobbler you can make how many pairs of shoes in a year <laughs> yeah um and we're in a we're now in a cycle that that shoe cobbler needs to make several shoes a day 
So while, yes, there's a craftsmanship in it, it, it doesn't oftentimes apply to how software is because they're in the, in the craftsmanship should be automation. It mm-hmm. is who we are, right? So, the, so we should be thinking of crafting a perfect assembly line as, as you would relate it. How do you, and how do you then retool easily? You know, we're moving from monolith to microservices. How do we, how do we shift in that? How do we retool to support our assembly line now? You know, changing in the, the way in which we see software development and software manufacturing. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think I think that's a challenge for a, a lot of people, especially especially organisations that don't write a lot of their own code. For one, um, larger organisations which, which have uh, you know inherently more um, uh, monolithic practices, mo- monolithic ways of working, processes, you know, the whole the whole wax. And you know, with, with that. Um, what, what would you say are the main benefits of microservices? Well, saving money, for one. Um, we are enter, in, entering into a conversation about low code. You know, how many times does an uh, enterprise have to write a sign-on routine? Mm-hmm. How many times should an enterprise write a routine to get basic customer data? So there, there there's several primary benefits of microservices, and creating reuse, highly reusable, you know, functions that can be shared across an organization is a huge money saver. Now, if we look at it from a, um, a just a data center standpoint and from our current situation, if we think about how many people now are staring at a computer at home and they call that the work day or the school day, everything we do from buying groceries uh, from visiting our doctor, um, every, I mean, just about everything has been moved into a computer interface. SaaS applications are more popular. The kinds of modern-day applications that we're writing require a high level of availability, so they need to be able to auto-scale, and they have to be fault-tolerant. We, do, we need to have 100% fault-tolerant systems. So that's what drove microservices, in particular around AI and machine learning. We need to, when you're talking about doing massive pattern matching, uh, you know, smart cars, we're talking about doing a ton of processing. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to auto, you know, to auto scale. And if you're gonna, you don't want to auto scale one at a monolithic, you want to auto scale a part of the monolithic. So microservices allows that kind of, uh, fault tolerance and auto scaling to occur. But at the same time, it allows for us to see this new world of software development as not being static anymore. We have now, we're developing dynamic applications. And applications change. It's, you know, it's like taking a, you know, it's like the difference between a transformer and Legos. Legos, you put all the pieces together, you've got your cool looking dragon, you put it up on the shelf, the kid wants to play with it, and what do you say? No, let's go build another one because I don't want you to break that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a transformer is constantly changing. So we're creating now this, this dynamic application that may have many, many microservices being updated across the, during the course of a 24-hour period microservices that the application team themselves didn't even write. 
but they somebody found an error in one of the security modules. They're going to go fix it, and your your application team are, automatically gets it. So this is a dynamic world now. We're really moving away from the static world, and that is why automation and is so important because now we're really talking about DevOps at scale. Hmm. We don't have we don't have the 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 luxury of time. Uh, even if we were smart enough to be able to get a do a deployment every day, that's an eight hour period, and sometimes it would take us ten or twelve, but we'd still call it a day. Um, but we got it done in a day. We did all that stuff, all that manual stuff. We did the we we were craftsmen in our 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 scripts that we tweaked. We were you know we were craftsmen in the way we updated the production environment to support you know more users. But it mm. took us 12 hours. We need to do it now in 12 seconds. Yeah, I think uh, we'll, we'll we'll come on in a little bit into you know why the explosion in microservices. But one of the best examples that I have for you know, my working uh, background so far is I, I worked with an organization who had, um, I, don't, I, don't, I can't be sure of the exact number, but say 100 entry points into a, a large data source. It was actually a mainframe, ironically, um, given your background. Um, but what one of the things that they wanted to do is obviously having multiple different um entry points into one data set starts you start to as you extrapolate that data within your own application and um, say my application and your application as you start to process it differently you end up with with different results and, and one of the first things that we, we were talking about was you know we, we have to go to a microservice based architecture and I, and I got looked at as I was a little bit daft <laughs> quite frankly because I don't think anyone really understood what that meant and I said APIs we have to consolidate down how many people are accessing this database. If I, if, if we write a, a proper API with a proper level of uh, authorization and authentication, people can access one API endpoint for the same thing. If we look at what people are actually accessing within the data set on the mainframe, then I can guarantee they're only looking at a tiny subset of information. Why not access that through an API? We control the API, we control access to it, we make updates to it, we make those updates incredibly quickly, rather than these you know, applications consuming the data directly, breaking when the application can no longer retrieve the information it needs because we don't know that information has been accessed. Um, you know, because we don't know who's accessing uh, that, that data source. So, you know, there's, there's all kinds of architectural benefits as, as well, I feel, around, you know, not just availability, not just around fault tolerance, which as you, uh, you know, correctly highlighted, they're obviously massive, massive parts of, of modern infrastructure and modern applications, especially as more and more people consume technology and consume microservices on everything they use day to day, probably without really realizing it, quite frankly. But, you know, that ability to micro segment, if you will, um, all of the touch points within that application, you know, is, is really for me what, what then lets you drive your product strategy towards more DevOps practices and, and ways of working because we, we completely decouple everything from everything else. And that's really the fundamentals of, of microservices. Uh, for me. And it becomes less porous, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, yeah. you know, it's almost like having this a vault and you have either one door on that vault and you know that that door is secure or you have 
30 doors on the vault and you have five doors that are really secure, 25, you know, another 10 or 15 that are kind of secure and maybe five or six that are just not secure at all. How do you know that? How, and microservice kind of solves that because you, you have one door to that data. Everybody uses the same door. So if that door has got a problem, you get to fix that one, that one access point. So while there has been a lot of discussion about, you know, in the early days, Kubernetes not being, um, you know, ha having security issues and there was some maturity on it. Uh, but, by, but now those, those basic security issues have been resolved. And now we can look at writing these applications that, and these dynamic applications that are not quite so porous. Yeah, I, I think that's really the the key thing. I think is is the um, I guess is the landscape uh, for one way to put it. It get, gets more diverse. This allows us to have more controllers. Uh, you know, from a software engineering perspective, it allows us to have more control of the the platform that we're building out, and, and it actually prevents something becoming mainframe like in size inherently over time as it gets bigger and bigger. So, so I think, you know, if you can with your application starting out in a microservice based architecture, you know, if it's someone's listening to this, thinking about what is potentially a large application, if you can segment it up into microservices that, that make logical sense, uh, and, you know, the, Examples that you, you gave were, were really good ones about user management, accessing, you know, basic profile information, um, all of that, all, all of those points, I guess, are really practical examples that should resonate with anyone who builds applications and think, oh, hang on, that's something that logically sits within a, within a service. Um, there is nothing more important in the microservices kind of implementation than understanding your domains and building out a domain-driven design. Mm -hmm. Now, we, 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 these discussions we've had before. In object-oriented programming, we talked about building out libraries in a, in a, in a domain-driven design, but we failed. And the reason why we failed, we failed as a community to do that, is because of something very basic, and at the core of software development, and that was the software build step. And every developer would, when they went to compile their code, they were not, the, the, the compile process did not have a, a way because there's, all of it was scripted, you know, whether, whether it be, had it been make or it be ant or, or something else that you're using now. You would, you would define where you want those libraries to come from. And, Oftentimes, what we found is they would actually check them into their own repository and then rename them so that they would basically say, I want to use this version, and I never want to use another version of it. I always want to use this version. And even even Microsoft, um, they created in the projects for, for Visual Studio mm -hmm. uh, the, the ability to rename these reusable components. And it was all about being able to do the link step in the build. We couldn't figure out how to do that well. So while we had gone down that road to, dis to discuss how to create reusable libraries across uh, teams, we did a static link. Now microservices, we don't do that anymore. Microservices, you're going to link at runtime. They're loosely coupled. They talk via APIs. You're going to have a different version of your application depending on which microservices are talking to each other. You don't do any static linking. 
Mm-hmm. So now we have to figure out the domain-driven design. We're, it's not an option anymore. We're yeah. not going to statically link that. And you know, I talk a lot about the, the, how important domain-driven design is, and I, tell, I always direct people to microservices.io. It's a great website. Uh, Chris Richardson of Cloud Foundry fame uh, runs it. There's great training on, on all of these topics, and that is an area that he really, really dives deep in because – I believe that he understands when you sit down and you start decoupling your monolithic into a microservice architecture, I think he understands the importance of identifying the high kind of the, the solution spaces that you need across your organization because everybody is re, everybody has written all of this over and over and over, and now in microservices, you don't want to do that. You just want to use something that's already out there. And that's what creates, you know, it, it makes it less porous. Uh, it creates the, uh, it, it drops costs down because you're not rewriting code that's already out there, and you're able to use the best code out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, domain-driven design is critical. It really is. And, and, and DeployHub, and, and the open, even in the open source project that we run, that's the, the core of DeployHub, everything is based on a domain. So if you're a microservice developer, you publish your microservice with all of the deployment data hmm. so that when it when somebody wants to consume it, they know what it does, they know where it's at, and they know how to deploy it without ever having to ask you. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah. like, a, you know, it's like a music sharing service. How, how do you find music if it's not organized into new releases and genre and, you know, my music? This is how we find things. It organizes things. So domain-driven design and the ability to organize these microservices will be the key to success in a microservice implementation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I guess the main reason for that is that, you know, you, you potentially go from having one application, uh, like, you know, let's say our main application. If we, in, if we break that up into microservices, we could be running in, into uh, hundreds, which is where a tool like DeployHub comes in uh, and is able to, to better articulate and manage what's available, make it um, known to other people what, what is there, how to use it, and, and how to deploy and, and how to consume it. And, you know, with, with with every great idea comes, you know, pros and cons. So we've just talked about a lot of the benefits of microservices, but other than the potential sprawl of different microservices around an organization, what are some of the other challenges associated with microservices? Well, I think um, sprawl is probably one of the biggest challenges. We get questions like, you know, which component um, has been deployed to which cluster? Mm-hmm. What, ver- what version of that component is in the cluster? Um, how many, you know, can you, sh- can you show me a list of all the components that live in, in, in every cluster? Uh, what's the difference between the application that, as I knew it five minutes ago and now, because now it's not running the same and we didn't change anything? So there is a, it's obscure, Microservices can be confu- can be confusing and they can be obscure, and we're not used to seeing the world in pieces. We're used to seeing application versions, mm-hmm. and when you stop dealing with an application version, and you're just going to now say, "I'm this is my 
these are my microservices, and I'm, you know, think about it as a pyramid. All of the base microservices are already out there. You're going to push your, your microservices that are going to consume that. Okay, you do it the first time. Your, your first time, your first time around, and then things start changing. Why did they change? So it's hard to track, you know, the transformation in a cluster over time because we're not thinking in that way. We're not thinking, and we don't have a, a user that calls and says, my microservice broke. We have a user yeah. that calls and says, I'm having trouble with my application. So everything we have done, every you know, every CI/CD tool, repositories, pipelines, testing tools, deployment tools are based on this mo this concept of a monolithic application. And when we stop having a monolithic application and we have instead little pieces and parts moving out individually out to the to the clusters, and we don't even know that they changed, and our customers are consuming them, mm -hmm. it is. It, it is challenging. It is extremely challenging because we are having to make a shift in the way we see the world. And we can't see the world as a full static application. We have to see the world as a dynamic application, and that is hard. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of gets me thinking around how you get from, I guess, point A, which is your monolithic application, to point B, which is... Um, migrating or, or re-architecting if you like into a more microservice based architecture so so domain driven designs clearly the the, the key part of, of that journey and making sure that you understand i guess first of all exactly what it is how how to achieve it and 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 how to split your application up into logical domains that make sense what what else is is really critical on on that path of getting from a to b well, I think that you, you need to start seeing your monolithic application today in terms of its individual components. Um, remember that the person who really understands how your what your application looks like is kind of the build release engineer, the person who worries about those build scripts and, and does the deployments. They understand all the pieces and parts of an application. They understand it needs a certain version of Tomcat or a certain version of Oracle. So in reality, our, our monolithic applications are a collection of components. And the sooner you begin seeing your application as a collection of components and how all of these components are managed as a package that is part of your application version, the easier it will be when you have, instead of just one jar file, you have 10 containers that make up what was in that single jar file. They're just different components. Um, we, with uh, with Artelius and Deploy Hub, we, we try to emphasize that it, a microservice is just a different component. And mm -hmm. everything we do, to even today in a monolithic world, is based on different components. Mm -hmm. So can we start thinking about an application as a collection of components and not so much as a monolithic? Because that is the reality. Somebody's keeping it from us because they've got some really cool scripts that pull it all together. But that person knows that it's a collection of components, and he knows how to package it. Mm -hmm. So, so the, as soon as we start shifting our the way we see what our application is, it's not just a jar file, but it's a jar file, and it has dependencies around it. 
component dependencies, the easier it will be for us to shift in terms of thinking about our application itself being a collection of containers. Yeah, that's, and that's an interesting, you know, that in itself for, for me, uh, with my experience with .NET for, for um, uh, more, <laughs> more years than I care to admit, um, is, is an interesting one because any language that uses that object, uh, object oriented design where you're used to having uh, classes containing a number of uh, different interfaces, properties, methods, etc., etc. You know, but by, you know, thinking about it that way, where, where you're in uh, an organization that uses uh, an object driven language, where you write classes, those classes, the way you design and write those classes is, is almost domain-driven design anyway. Um, you know, you would generally have a class for interacting with your database. You would have a class for user manager. And if it's e-commerce software, you would have a class for managing the, the shopping cart. Um, and those, those kind of things. It, it almost exactly. Seems, uh, exactly. This is, this is where I think a lot of people get confused with microservices because developers know this stuff. <laughs> and then... We, we've gone to package that up into an application and we've gone from making it um, microservice component level um, DLLs effectively if it's .NET or JAR files if yeah. it's Java and we've made it into a monolithic application. So exactly. you know, I, th I think that's the unpicking that needs to be done, right? It's, it's not so much the development side of it, it's more the deploy side. Is that, is that a fair? It is. it is. And that's the way I see it, exactly. Again, if, if we can start thinking about the individual pieces of the, of our monolithic, we will see that we already, it, we're not really, we're changing the DevOps part of it. Mm -hmm. the, the data center's changing and the DevOps part is changing. And, and that is a big shift for us because we're not creating that, we're not taking all those classes and linking them together in a monolithic. We mm -hmm. have to be able to take those classes and now push them out as individual components. It's actually the last mile of Agile. If, if you think about it, yeah. because we always did Agile at that level. We'd say, well, we have a class that we need to fix, um, and we're going to make that change. We recompile the whole beast, and then we, re mm. re we release the whole beast. That all is very waterfall-like, and it's not Agile. It's not Agile when you're picking up the entire you know, package and delivering it all the time, yeah. every single time, all the pieces and all the components. That's what we are fixing with microservices. And when we can now just take one class – and update that class, and that class has an impact on five or six applications that are using it, and we've improved five or six applications by improving that one class. Now we're really doing something interesting in software development. Yeah, and it's it's, it's interesting, you know, making that, that link there. And one of the reasons I said that is I, I, I know for well there will be a few people with, you know, development background thinking, well, you know, maybe I, I do this already. And, and I think it's important to, you know, really highlight where, where the unpicking needs to be done with, with microservices. But one of the things that's always perplexed me, and this, this happens in technology all the time, um, you alluded to it at the beginning, DevOps is, is not really that new. The term DevOps is new and the way we think about DevOps in, in a, I guess, a cloud-first world is is, is newish, but the, the the core principles behind DevOps are, have been around for a long, long time, as, as you were saying at the beginning of the podcast. And 
Same with microservices. Right? The example I've just gone through will hopefully ring uh, through in a lot of developers' minds uh, that are listening. And so they will think, hang on a minute, I've been doing this for a long, long time. So, you know, in, in IT, we've done the traditional thing of take something really old and we've rebranded it into something with a fancy name, i.e. microservices. But it seems to have really taken off in a lot of ways and become more mainstream with DevOps. You, you generally hear about DevOps and microservices in the, the same sentence. Why, wh- why is that link being made? Why does it seem such a natural fit to have DevOps and microservices to, together? Is it the, is it the agile way we uh, run um, our workflow? Is it, is it the way we automate the build and release and testing or is it something else? I think it has to do with the pipeline itself because we are really taking a hammer to the we're taking a hammer to the build process and if you think about ci and cd pretty much everybody has gotten ci down you know trying to get that it, well, some some do some don't but you know the the holy grail of ci was to do it build in 10 minutes or less fix mm-hmm. the build build it every all the time and make sure it's always a, a it's something that you it's a released candidate um, so that build was really, really important, and it continues to be. But now in microservices, the build's not so important anymore. You're not compiling and linking all these pieces together and pulling the package together. And at dev, you are basically taking a, you know, a Python script, and maybe you run uh, something like an artifactory against it and create your container, bring anything down that Python might need and put it in mm-hmm. the container, and then you're pushing that container out. You're not you're, – you're not – taking you're not building application anymore so your ci process just got completely dis- disrupted so what do you do with that how do you fix that how where's your bill of material report where's your diff report what's your how do you determine impact that's why i think devops and microservices go there's always a conversation because people in the devops business understand the importance of the the build and how that relates to the success of testing and production releases. And when you break that, you have a problem. Yeah, and I, I guess for, you know, for, for organizations that are, are going from the monolithic to microservice-based architecture, that are already practicing DevOps, they're, they're, they're going to feel a, a level of pain while... They're going to feel pain. There's yeah. no doubt, there, especially at the at the compile step, and everything that I, I like to call our north star um, came from that build. We versioned it. We had a build number associated to it. In fact, I used to tell people if you really want to freak out a build engineer, go delete all the executables they just created in their build because they may not be able to create them again. <laughs> and we are deleting all the executables that they just created in their build. They're just now pushing one container at a time, and who knows what it, how it's going to operate. And we have to get beyond, and right now what we're doing is we wait for an incident report to find out that the microservice we just deployed is, is broken. It broke something. That has to get fixed. So every, pretty much our DevOps process, our CI/CD pipeline, is changing. We have to step up to the plate as DevOps engineers to start thinking of what it, what we did successfully in monolithic and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because we now have microservices moving one at a time, there's no reason why we can't track uh, where they're going and what they're doing. 
And I probably say this because I think about it all the time because that's what our, the Ortelius Open Source Project is all about. It's about how do you track a microservice, who's consuming it, roll that up and create an application version, even though it's logical, and know where it's running across all these clusters. That is what we're talking about when we say we're going to reimagine CI because we still need that continuous integration step. We still need to understand the pieces and parts, even though they're being done, they're, it's all being done not at the dev state, but way now at the production state. Or at the, well, let's just call it the runtime state. So you might have to deploy a, a microservice to your development cluster to figure out if it's going to work, and then it works there because you had a dependent microservice or a microservice this microservice spoke to that also had the fix in it, but then when you deploy it to the test, it broke. So you hear, it worked in my cluster, and as we used to hear, it worked on my machine. <laughs> yeah. These are, it's, the base, yeah, it's the basic configuration management problem that, that we are really looking at, and that's what the industry has to start understanding. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier on about where um, Deploy Hub helps uh, around making sure that there's almost like a, a central catalog of um, microservices available and people understand um, how to use and consume those microservices, and we, we get to reduce the the cost by sharing them as uh, and increasing our utility uh, by being able to do that uh, moving across to, to low code. But what you know, what what else, if anything, does uh, Deploy Hub bring to the the table for for you know something which is I feel with microservices relatively straightforward to understand, um, a lot harder to execute in reality. Right. So what what we're doing is we are um, we're maintaining a logical view of the application version. Mm -hmm. So every time a microservice is updated, we generate a new version of the application. Now that version may never have been deployed yet, but we know that there's a new microservice out there that will impact that application. And if it gets updated, we report where that new microservice has been updated based on the, on the uh, cluster. So think about it is, uh, as it's basically taking, you know, many-to-many -many and uh, one-to-many relationships and reporting on them. So every time a microservice is new, we say who, who has consumed this microservice in the past. Now, every single one of those applications have the impact of being um, changed. We're going to increment the version of that application, and if, if, that, if one of those applications decides to push it out and consume it, we know that other applications have a new version. So it's, it's almost like everybody, we're tracking how everybody is standing up and shifting over to the next chair, right? We're, 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 we're basically putting a version control engine on your cluster in order to track all that stuff. Okay. Okay. Good. And that's, you know, I think, you know, microservices aside, I think that's one of the challenges with containers in, in general, right? Is make, making sure people understand what, what release, if you like, what version of, of code is deployed to a container at, at any one time, because it is so dynamic and so fluid and, and so in the hands and the power of the developer, if it's all pipeline integrated that you know, other people may not may not see what's happening. So this, you know, this provides a great level of insight into what's actually happening. Yes, and you know, we hear about observability, um, 
We talk about API gateways. And what we're doing on that side of the house is we're seeing what's actually occurring in one particular cluster, right? So we're monitoring what's occurring at that cluster. What Deploy Hub's doing is sitting above that and saying, hey, even before you, even before you push it out, I can track where, you know, who's using it, and I can track what cluster it's already been deployed to. One of the most common questions we have is the sim one of the simplest questions that we can answer in a monolithic is what's the difference between my two applications? What changed? And that's one of the hardest things to find in a microservice implementation. <laughs> mm, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, so um, just, just looping back um, to, to wrap up, one, you know, I asked you at the beginning what, what does DevOps mean to you? And um, you know, like you say, DevOps is not really new, and you've been doing a lot of this stuff since um, the, your time in mainframe as a, as a programmer. Um, so I'm really intrigued to, to hear your um, answer to the last point. So one of the last things I want to ask you is, if I asked you the same question, what does DevOps mean to you three or four years ago, would your answer have been any different? No. No, these are problems that uh, I have devoted my entire career. I, and I'm, I'm really serious about when I moved off the mainframe and onto a distributed platform, I saw that there was a serious gap in the way distributed teams managed their software development practice. And we still haven't gotten it right, to be honest. Um, so I pretty much, even two or three years ago, um, w under OpenMake Software, which is a, another company that I, I own, we do uh, build management. We Our goal was to make builds uh, easier, and not just about speeding them up, but be able to share libraries and, and make a build system that was more dynamic. And it's kind of funny. I feel like that the software, the the data center, and the you know the, the modern architecture is sort of caught up with how we saw the world even at the OpenMake level when we were saying we need to be able to enforce the use of particular libraries and understand what versions of libraries we're linking. Well, we're still solving the same problem, and now it just looks different. So we had to pivot along with everybody else, but it's still the same problem. We're still working to really help companies deliver software as fast as possible to their end users so that they can remain competitive. Getting new innovation out to end users is the core of business agility. And that's what we've been asked to do as software developers for years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, unfortunately, um, I, I, could, <laughs> I could carry on talking to you for a long time about this, but uh, we've come up to uh, time, unfortunately. Um, so just, just as we start to wrap up, uh, I just want to say thanks very much for taking the time to uh, join me for this week's episode. It's been very good talking to you. It's been great. It's fun. I love talking about this stuff, especially with somebody who can riff back like you can. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, likewise, it's, it's really good talking to someone who's, who's passionate about a, a topic and, and subject and, uh, and, you know, in your case, has dedicated uh, much of your career to it. So, um, you know, all, all the best with Deploy Hub and your other um, ventures in the future. And again, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. 
Okay, and uh, thank you everyone for listening as, as well. So that wraps up episode 19. Um, so episode 20 next week, a little, little bit different. Um, I'm going to be talking to uh, Yuval Oren from Israel, who's a, a DevOps consultant. And we're going to be talking about how to become a better DevOps engineer. So uh, once again, thank you everyone for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we will see everyone soon. Thank you.